Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing our series, His Story, and last week, actually for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, the Genesis flood. First week we talked about Noah and his life in particular, and then last week we began to talk about the flood, and we're continuing that uh, today, and next week we'll be continuing a little bit more as it relates to the repopulation of the earth and so on, and whether, again, whether there's credibility in the Genesis story versus much of what's going on in modern uh, anthropology and other sciences. So, want to look at that. Again, last week we started talking about the flood narrative, and today we continue with part two. Physicist Sabine Hassenfelder is a research fellow at the Franklin Institute for Advanced Studies in Germany. Her YouTube channel has over 550,000 subscribers. She admits she cringes when scientists like the late Stephen Hawking and many others, make numerous unsubstantiated pronouncements like, there is no possibility of a creator. She's uncomfortable with overconfident proclamations that, like widely held beliefs in the origin of the universe, the existence of other universes, and other unverifiable beliefs. She wants scientists to be mindful of the limits of their discipline. Now, she's a research fellow, you know, in the sciences. Mindful of the limits of their discipline. Sometimes the only scientific answer we can give is, we don't know. It therefore seems likely to me that in our ongoing process of knowledge discovery, religion and science will continue to coexist for a very long time. That's because science itself is limited, and where science ends, we seek other modes of explanation. Some of these limits stem from the specific math we currently use, which, for example, requires initial conditions or indeterministic jumps, and they may be overcome as physics advances further. But some limits seem insurmountable to me. Eventually, I think, we'll have to accept some facts about our universe without scientific explanation, if only because the scientific method can't justify itself. We may observe that the scientific method works, conclude that it's to our advantage to continue using it, but still never know why it works. Sabine gets it. Every scientific discipline has limitations. Theoretically, true science never changes. And I say true science because we would all agree that once we've determined something really is a fact, it is a fact and it doesn't change. The problem is, even in the sciences, there are things we assume are facts that sometimes are not. Provable facts are facts. But a lot of sciences have assumptions built in. And as a result, there is sometimes unverified bias in those. Listening to this, uh, listen to this alarming trend. This is in the, the US, I believe in our educational institutions in the US. Researchers calculate that about 530,000 fewer public school students are learning about intelligent design in the ninth or 10th grade biology classes today compared to in 2007. So this is 2020 compared to 2007. Now, intelligent design as a field has grown exponentially over the last couple of decades, and all it basically means is you cannot explain everything we have around us 
through evolutionary processes. There's such a complexity, especially as we've been able to discover and understand DNA, there's such a complexity to life that macroevolution can't explain it. And even if we don't believe in the God of the Bible, it seems like there's something intelligent behind all that we experience in nature and in ourselves. The amount of class time science teachers spend on human evolution has doubled in 12 years, even while intelligent design has gotten a foothold in the sciences according to scholars at Penn State University and the National Center for Science Education. Now, those are not Christian institutions, by the way, especially uh, the National Center for Science Education. The changes come from a new generation of teachers, new textbooks, and updated education standards. Science teachers who teach intelligent design as a valid alternative. In 2007, 8% were teaching it. Now, this is public schools. 2019, 5%. Science teachers who discuss intelligent design 23% in 2007 would bring it up. 2019, 14%. Science teachers who teach evolution is established science, in other words, factual. 2007, 51%, half. 2019, 67%, two-thirds. So this is all going on, this trend away from intelligent design in public schools and again, the Catholic schools in the U.S. don't get any support like they would here, so they're not viewed as public in any way. They probably, actually, they probably teach evolution as well in many cases. I think the Catholic Church has accepted that. But this is going on while we're discovering the complexity of DNA in all organisms. And I'm going to quote a science, you know, a basically a, a, a study that came about a big group of scientists, evolutionists, got together in Chicago and talked about their plight moving forward and how difficult it is because they recognize science is working against them now. But macroevolution is on life support in sciences, but you would never know it in public schools. In school, it's having a revival, even though it is increasingly being discredited. Which reminds me of my eldest daughter when she was going to the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, where one of her teachers said, if you don't believe in evolution, get the F out of college. Not out of my class, out of college. That's bias. Incredible bias. The Genesis flood is not simply about water covering the globe. It's not about Noah's faith, even though there's some elements of Noah's faith, and Hebrews talks about Noah as a hero of faith. It's not about the animals. I wish some of them wouldn't have made it, cats in particular. But it's not about whether the cats got on the ark or not. They did. God is gracious. But it's about two world views that are clashing and will always clash. The flood creates a world view, and this is my world view, that the flood can explain geology, the flood can explain paleontology, the flood can explain anthropology as recent history. That is opposed to the dominant science worldview that does not accept this that has mostly developed in the last 200 years through a belief in uniformitarianism, that the earth is five billion years old, four and a half billion years old, and everything has happened in very, very, very small steps, not based on millions, based on millions and billions of years. And this is becoming the classic battle between science and the Bible, and to the point where a lot of Christians are accepting it, and a lot of people in my position just don't really want to talk about this because Actually, in Alberta, this is not an easy subject to talk about because so many people have geological backgrounds. But what science doesn't always admit are its own presuppositions. 
and biases and assumptions. You say, well, Paul, you've got presuppositions and biases and assumptions. Yes, I do. I do. I believe this is God's word, and I believe it's accurate in history. That is my bias. So I'm going to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt until it can be proven wrong. That's my bias. I admit that. But science begins from a different presupposition. There must not be a God, therefore I must explain everything apart from God. Therefore I need a lot of time and uniformitarianism. So first let's read again a part of the historical narrative. Genesis chapter 7 begins on page 5. You can start from the uh, beginning of the Bible there. Genesis, the first book. We're going to hit chapter 7. We're just going to reread a little part of the story. Now again, we're not going to be working with the text a lot today because... The text is the text, but what we're talking about are things that are debated behind the scenes in the sciences. But I want to just remind us of part of the story here. So Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600 year of Noah's life, again, we talked about lifespans before the flood and a little bit after. In the second month, 17th day of the month, so look at it like February 17th. On the same day, all the foundations of the great deep burst open. Now, this is a big deal. This is massive tectonic shifting and violence like the world has never seen. This created catastrophe everywhere at a level we cannot possibly imagine that completely reshaped the created world. Where continents were, where everything is, a massive reconstruction of the planet. Uh, scientists have estimated that even if we had a water vapor canopy around the planet, which some speculate we did, that's been discredited to some degree, that around the world the atmosphere could only hold about two inches of rain to cover the world. So the 40 days of rain in that part of the world or wherever it was, was not really what really caused the flood. It caused a lot of mud and mess. What's going on is the fountains of the deep breaking up, continents separating, massive amounts of volcanic action in the oceans, tsunamis, etc. and the continents were not that far out of water. We had different mountain ranges then than we have today, which we can see from current mountain ranges, which have, by the way, marine fossils at the top of them, including Everest. So the mountain ranges that exist then are not the mountain ranges to some degree that exist today. So the fountains of the great deep burst open. Subterranean water, the oceans, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. That had to be interesting. Those eight people locked together for about a year. That was, I'm sure, interesting. I'll bet family meals got a little testy. It's not in the text. They and every beast after its kind, all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah, uh, two by, uh, by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Last week we said about 98% of all living things are not air-breathing. So this has been a small part of creation, kinds. In other words, you didn't need a zebra and a donkey and a horse. They all come from the same kind. That comes from genetic inbreeding uh, and microevolution. So you really didn't need as many species as you would think. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days. The water increased and lifted up the ark so it rose above the earth. The water prevailed, increased greatly upon the earth. The ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. Again, probably a different set of mountains. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds, cattle, beasts, every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. 
Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. They were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. Clearly it's claiming a global catastrophe. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. So 150 days you have the violence. You have the subterranean stuff going on, the volcanic stuff, earthquakes, tsunamis, 150 days of that. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. In the seventh month and the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat which actually are volcanic mountains that may have been volcanically active during that time, probably were. Last week we emphasized three key points, and I just want to quickly revisit those. I've got a lot of stuff to talk about today, and uh, we'll try to get you out of here by 2 o'clock. <laughs> but we emphasized three key points. Number one, the text that we read here in Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, 9 reads like historical narrative. So last week you talked about different genres of literature. And we said when you're reading something that reads like historical narrative, it's intended to be viewed as history. So you view it literally, you take it literally. These are not mythological you know, statements here. These are literal historic events. You've got dates in Noah's life mentioned. You've got months mentioned, days mentioned. You've got places mentioned. This reads like history. And so when the Bible reads like history, we should take it as history or we're rejecting sort of the inspiration of the scriptures in that area. So that's a big deal. The text is historical narrative. This isn't Jesus saying, once upon a time there was a guy. You know, and Jesus does do that at times. Jesus tells stories sometimes, but when he tells them, you know, they're stories. You know, there was a parable, and he, and he begins it that way. So there are times where there are stories in the Bible that aren't literal, but they make a literal point. This isn't one of those times. This reads as history. Also, it's affirmed by many other biblical authors. So you've got other biblical authors, beginning the Psalms, Isaiah, and many writers in the New Testament, Jesus himself talking about flood issues, and in many cases giving specific enough detail to say that the belief of the apostles and Jesus was that Eight people were left on the planet when this was over, which means it was a global flood. They believed it. A local flood, and this was our third point, a local flood simply cannot explain the story at all. Now, the reason a lot of people argue for a local flood, and these are going to tend to be, and some of you do, and I love everybody. In fact, I think it's a good time to say that. I love everybody, all right? Some of you are going to vehemently disagree with me on much of what we're talking about today. It actually started before the service. So <clears throat> we're not all going to agree on this. I love you. And when we get to heaven, we're going to watch the rerun. If I'm right, I'm going to say, I told you so. If you're right, you're going to say, I told you so. And we'll both be glorified at that point. It won't be a big deal. Until then, I'm going to defend Genesis 6, 7, and 8. All right. So a local flood is held to by many Christians because many Christians want to say, all right, I'm not going to dismiss Genesis. These are real people. Something happened, so I'm going to believe in a local flood, and it allows them to maintain their geological and paleontological and anthropological views outside of Genesis. The problem is they're in direct conflict. 
You really can't have it both ways. So last week we said a local flood simply can't explain the story at all, and here were the reasons, uh, a list that we put up there last week. If I could get, there we go. The purpose of judgment is thwarted. The purpose of the flood was God basically, I, I don't know if God would ever say it this way, but I'm speaking for him now, so I'm gonna you know, misquote him. God wanted a do-over. He's like, there is not faith left on the earth. We've got, some people estimate, I think this is high, but some people estimate there could have been up to a billion people on the planet. I think that's way high. But there was, you know, there was a well-developed civilization where at least 1,700 years from Adam, people were living longer. There are a lot of people on the planet. There was very little faith left, and God recognized that with human nature being what it was in a fallen world, we are not going to ever have faith develop in this world the way it is. Noah and his family are pretty much all that's left and a few of his relatives, which I believe would have died before this took place, or God would have put them on the ark as well. So the purpose of judgment doesn't make sense if God's just saying, we're gonna wipe out this little spot with a local flood. Because God would have just said to Noah, hey, I want you to just go on vacation to Saskatchewan because there's more Christians there. That's what he would have said. Saskatchewan would have been a Hebrew word. But he didn't say that. He said, the whole world is hopeless, violence is everywhere, my image is not being respected in humankind, we need to start over. There is one man in his family that I can trust to carry on faith, it was Noah. So judgment doesn't make sense. The point of animal preservation is mute. Why on earth are we building an ark for animals if it's gonna be a local flood? Animals are pretty good at getting to higher ground. Animals are pretty good at migrating. A local flood doesn't explain the whole purpose of the ark in any way. Why birds on the ark? Birds are really good at getting away from bad stuff. They fly. Truly high water doesn't last a day. My point is, if this is a local flood, you can't make an argument for this lasting a year, basically, before they get off the ark. You ever seen a tsunami? It's over in minutes. A couple hundred foot high wave, it's over in minutes. Why? Because gravity works with water. It runs downhill. You can do that experiment at home later. It will work. It runs downhill. It doesn't stay stacked up. And if you had that kind of water on any part of any continent, it dissipates quickly. And if it didn't, a tide would not allow a local flood anyway. A tide is the moon's gravity working with the earth. It keeps pulling water towards the moon as the earth and moon rotate. It keeps pulling water. If you had a couple hundred feet of water over the Middle East, Come nighttime, that would keep moving around the globe because that's how tides work. It just doesn't make sense. The dove experiment, etc. At the end of the flood, Noah's sending out first a raven, then dove, to see if they've got a place to land. That's a global flood because the Bible says everything was covered at one point. So we're going to pick up there. Number one today, the geological rock strata works with a global flood story. Okay? We're not going to agree on this. That's okay. I'm going to present a biblical perspective on this, and we could disagree at Timmy's over coffee. I'm going to tell you two stories here. So, first of all, I would admit I wasn't there. I think most of you would admit you weren't there. There are a couple of you, maybe you can date yourself back then. We weren't there. But I'm going to give you two different perspectives, two stories. The geological timetable taught in school uh, bases the age of the earth at about 4.5 to 4.7 a billion years. Actually, some would say 3.5 to 4, but it's in that four, four and a half billion year range. And over the last billion years of that perspective, you've got the, these periods of time or eras, the Cenozoic, Mesozoic, Paleozoic, Neo, 
Proterozoic uh, eras, and that takes us back about a billion years in history uh, if the earth is four and a half billion years old. And during those times, you know, that last billion years uh, taught in geology classes today would be when most of the sedimentary rocks uh, were put on the planet. Most of this stuff took place. So they all date that. And much of that in the last two periods, the Cenozoic or the Mesozoic, which goes back about, you know, 250 million years. So within that time frame, the view in a lot of geology classes, which don't have to account for God, would be that layers of sediment uh, continued to be placed on the earth, and sediments are coming from other rocks that are broken down from physical or chemical wear or some sort of violence on the earth, like the flood, that sediments would be created from rocks, and those would be laid down in a uniform manner uh, over the earth, sort of one after another, and they would say that that's been going on for about the last billion years, in particular, where you have these sedimentary layers. Science class would say these sedimentary layers have been uniformly laid down over time over, again, mostly the last billion years. Now, the problem, and, and science class would admit this, you know, it helps to have some chaos go on. It helps to have some violence happen on the planet to create some of these kinds of things. And so a lot of scientists would say, uh, because they would agree we've got mass extinction events, we've got massive uh, we've got an ice age, many would say more than one ice age. We've got massive coal, oil, and gas beds, which are buried in the earth, which means somehow a whole lot of organic material was covered in something violent. So they recognize you kind of need some chaos at times, and typically the best explanation for that uh, outside of the, the Bible would be there must have been a meteor or something like that. They'll look at places on the planet and say there probably a meteor hit, which would have caused really a, kind of a global flood. <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot of volcanic activity, which would have put a lot of ash in the air, which could have caused ice ages because then the oceans would warm, sun doesn't get through, things get colder, uh, and then, you know, what happened north of us would have happened. Canada was all covered with ice. So the bottom line is they would find fossils in these sediments as well, and the fossils start with simpler ones lower, and this is an important thing because we do have to defend why that is. There's simpler fossils in lower beds, sediment beds, than there are above it. That's, that's a fair argument against our view, so we have to address that. So you find fossils in these sediments, and they construct evolutionary theory based on the, you know, the level of fossil life that continues up and with the more complex systems a little higher in the beds. Now, many people believe that. Or here's an alternative theory. Um, I shouldn't say theory. Here's the Bible. God created the earth as described in Genesis chapter one. And it began with water covering everything. If you have any belief in a literal view of how creation is described, water covered everything and then there was a separation of land and water. As land rises from the water, you would have already then had a lot of sediment on the first creation rock. Water was separated from land as described in Genesis. At first, you probably had one giant landmass, and I think most people believe this today, the continents separated at some point. You can look at a globe, and they kind of do look like puzzle pieces that have been separated. Third day of creation, you've got this statement that water is separated from land, which means at that point, there would have been ocean runoff at a massive level above what was land at that point. So the earth crust had a massive breakage. There was violence in the creation time that separated land from water. 
As the land emerged, the oceans receded, leaving the first sediments on original creation rock. This large landmass was then populated with plants, animals, mankind, by a creative act of God. And if it was one massive landmass that eventually became other continents, it probably would have been closer to the equator and would have sustained a lot more life than the continents do today where they're located today. And I believe everyone believes the continents have separated. I think everyone believes that. Then you get to the flood. Not that many thousands of years into creation history. If you believe anything about the genealogies, which are listed by date, basically, the flood would have happened within 2,000 years of the creation of Adam and Eve. And the flood was, and this is where I think we need to be honest, we cannot imagine the level of destruction. It was a massive global destruction event that did the damage, in our view, of what it would take a billion years of evolution to create. It was that destructive. It was 150 days of massive tectonic upheaval, creating sediments at a level we cannot possibly imagine. And this one giant landmass separated into many continents with these tectonic shifts, which clearly look like a puzzle if you put them back together, Subterranean waters poured up as tectonic plates shifted. Perhaps, I don't know, the rising and sinking. I don't know enough about that, but there are plenty of creation scientists who do and have the same degrees from the same universities as the people who disagree with them, by the way. The majority of the water in the flood would have been oceanic water or subterranean water, the fountains of the deep. It wouldn't have been rain, although it rained constantly. Rain would not have done what happened here. It was violence below the surface. Massive amounts of fissures, earthquakes, volcanoes, and everyone agrees there was a massive amount of volcanic activity not that many thousands of years ago. Fissures, earthquakes, volcanoes led to hurricanes, tidal waves, tsunamis that would have pounded the world. Rocks breaking down because of the violence of the oceans. I've been in mountain passes and seen boulders the size of houses in the Grand Canyon and where they got lodged at a certain point. Massive creation of sediments. Sediments created that literally go miles deep into the earth today. As the violence subsided, a world which seemed to have been highly vegetated settled down and was different. I don't believe there were necessarily deserts before the flood. Uh, we wouldn't have had necessarily the level of, you know, land covered by ice and snow and so on. There seems to have been some climate change, pretty much massive climate change. Masses of vegetation were trapped under thousands of feet of sediment, which is where you would get coal, oil, and gas beds. Extinction graveyards populated the sediments up to the surface, and a new world, more varied in climate, existed. Massive volcanic activity probably at that point, according to creation geologists, would have taken place. Ash spew. We see volcanoes take place today, and we know that they have like a cloud effect in the earth. Creation scientists say there would have been a massive amount of volcanic activity with all of this. It would have spewed a ton of ash into the sky, which would have actually cooled the earth and would have caused, and many would say, over four or 500 years, the level of ice that you had in the northern hemispheres on the planet. The aftermath of the flood would have created an ice age, and you had a far less hospitable planet. In fact, the post-flood world was likely about 400 feet different in elevation than today. You can go to the bottom of the Black Sea, and you can find river deltas. Did you know that? 
you can find actually evidence of civilizations about 400 feet below the Black Sea. You can find a river delta there. And many people believe that would have been right after the flood, but after the Ice Age and the melting that went on here in Canada and north of us, that we might have added up to 400 feet of water with all of the melt. You think we're worried about global warming today and the oceans rising? It's very likely we've had about 400 feet of that already taking place, which is also why many people believe that there were land bridges between the continents, even after the flood, that no longer exist. Because if you had 400 feet of land compared to what it is today, you can move around a lot better on this planet. By the time it was over, tectonic plates smashing, mashing together created new mountains like the Rockies, Everest, and a lot of these mountains, if you go near the top, they have small marine fossils embedded in sediments. I was on a Grand Canyon trip a number of years ago with people who believe in the Genesis Flood and who believe it explains the Earth's geology. I believe one of them had his degrees from, I think, Australia. He sounded Australian. He sounded something, you know, British, Australian, South African. It's always a little hard for, you know, an American to figure that out. But I think he was, had his degrees from Australia. And as we're going down the Grand Canyon, you're looking up a mile at sediments that they would say were actually formed in a very short period of time, not millions and billions of years, but a very short period of time. You got near the bottom of the Grand Canyon where you have a totally different kind of rock. And it was fascinating there as I'm with pastors and seminary professors and scientists. It wasn't just a bunch of pastors. We had experts there in these sciences. And you can put your hand on what they would say was the third day of creation rock, or creation rock, and then the first sediments that would have gone above that when the land was separated from the water. And then you look above that and you've got all the flood geology. Looking, north, looking to the heavens a mile. It was a fascinating feeling to be able to look at the world in the bottom of that canyon and explain, have somebody from a scientific explanation explain human history and the history of our planet. What many say took millions of years in their minds took days, weeks, and months because we can also repeat this today and I'm going to give you samples of that in a few moments. And those people share degrees with those who believe in billion years of uniform sedimentary layers. They have the same degrees from the same schools, but it is a clash of worldviews. How can they be that far apart? How is that possible? Well, I'm going to give you the reasons I believe in flood geology, and then uh, next week we'll talk about something a lot happier. Actually, no, two weeks from now we'll talk about something happier. Here's the reason I believe in flood geology, and there's five here I just want to go through. Catastrophe happened. Now, this is not really contestable. We have all kinds of fossil fuels trapped. I mean, the miles and miles of coal beds, and, and you have oil and gas, and, and I believe we got coal that could keep us going for, I don't know, a couple hundred years. We got oil and gas, even if people don't want it to keep us going for a couple hundred years. Uh, the reality is we've got just an immense amount of fossil fuels on this planet. And you can't have those fossil fuels created if you just have real slow uniform sediments take place because everything would rot. You have to trap them in a violent event. You have to get them under sediment without air and without bacteria for, for things to fossilize. And in the case of fossil fuels, you're just not going to have all this creation of fossil fuels if they all died on the surface and it just stayed there. You, need, you know there was some sort of catastrophe that sort of trapped it all together. That's a given. So you have to have catastrophe. 
If you don't want the flood, you have to have catastrophe. You've got to have a meteor or something, which would have been an extinction event for all of humanity, by the way. Nothing would have survived that, not even the ark. Mass extinctions. We know we've got that as well. Something must explain a climate change in history that did make it inhospitable for dinosaurs, that did make it inhospitable for, for you know, woolly mammoths or whatever. There's a woolly mammoth graveyard. This was on a Joe Rogan podcast, a great theologian named Joe Rogan. <laughs> Almost as good as Sylvester Stallone. If you get those two together, that's a seminary class. No, but Joe Rogan had a podcast. And I, one of you might have sent this to me. That might have been, did you send it to me, Jay? Okay, all right, don't punish Jay for being my friend or for sending me stuff or for being connected to me. But anyway, so there, there's this guy on Joe Rogan, he, he bought this piece of land in Alaska and it's literally, it's literally a, a woolly mammoth graveyard. Like, and they just keep digging, they find more and more and they built a big shed and they keep putting it all on display. It's just incredible, these mass extinction events, these mass graveyards around the world. So you've got that. We all know it. You also have massive climate change. There was an ice age. There have been sea rising. Something led to that. It, it seemed to have been a violent situation. And you've got miles of sedimentary sort of rock that have taken place in parts of the world. You've got to explain it some way. And I don't know that you can ever get there, even with millions and millions and millions of years, to create the world that we have today. So catastrophe happened. I'm going to believe the Bible's giving us a great example of it. Massive tectonic shifting, oceans over land, tidal waves, tsunamis, volcanic activity, a total change of the world's climate, total shifting of the continents. It's an explanation. It's the one in the Bible. Quick rocks. You've been taught how all these sedimentary layers take so much time. Well, Mount St. Helens erupted in about 1980, and I went there. Not for the eruption. So I went there not long after that, and, and in 1980, you had this massive, it was a pretty big volcano. I mean, it, it, it killed people. People died when this thing erupted. Remember that guy who lived by the edge of the lake, and he was warned to move, and he didn't want to move, and I think now he's about 400 feet under another lake. Anyway, May of 1980, you have the first pyroclastic flow from the volcano. And so that's May 1980. June 12, 1980, you have the second pyroclastic flow. And you can see these now because there's kind of a cliff. It looks like the edge of the Grand Canyon. There's one of those uh, on Mount St. Helens where some of this stuff flowed through and sort of a cliff has been created where you can see rock strata. In March 19th of 1982, there was a mudslide that deposited something on top of it. So what's really interesting, you can look at that cliff of 30 or 40 feet, which we know was created in two years. And you can see strata that would be explained any other way in the world, any other place in the world, not by a volcano as millions of years. And we know it was days. It doesn't take a long time for rock to form. Things that we assume take millions of years can happen very, very quickly if you have the right sediments and you have a mineral hardener in it. And if that mineral hardener is there, some kind of cement-like substance, some of you have poured cement, you can make rock in 20 minutes. You know it, you've done it. Well, there's cement-like minerals in rock, in sediments, and where those exist, rock can form very quickly. That volcano shows how quickly rock, and that's not lava. We're not talking about molten rock. We're talking about mud and sediments, 30 or 40 feet that form in a matter of months, and they are rock today. There's also a young earth claim, which is not scientific, I'm just going to say it, but the Bible equates man and world's creation as simultaneous, all right? 
and then you've got these genealogies. In Mark 10:6, Jesus affirms the creation of Adam and Eve at the beginning of creation. So here you, again, one of these problems where be careful about the domino effect is Jesus is basically saying the world and Adam and Eve are created at the same time, which doesn't allow us hundreds of millions of years or billions of years of evolution to get there. There's this statement by Jesus, who I happen to believe is the Messiah and Son of God, as he says, that this all happened kind of together at the beginning of creation. So there's a young earth claim by Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels. Then you've got dating issues. Because here, this should settle everything. Dating issues. All right. Dating issues. Don't the rocks just tell us the dates? Now, I'm not a very smart guy here on this subject. But I know smart people. All right? We're all quoting experts. So I'm just going to quote mine. All right? Rocks are dated through radiometric or radioisotope dating. Now, we're not talking about sedimentary rocks or fossils. We're talking about like igneous rocks, older rocks, the ones that are under the first, um, you know, couple of miles of sediments. Those kinds of rocks are dated through radiometric dating. So what you do is you take a rock. You take an, a rock that's really deep in the earth, and you look at the rate of decay of radioactive elements that are in the rock, like uranium, which becomes lead over time, and you measure the half-life and so on. So you take a piece of rock... You estimate the age by the amount of the parent element, which would be uranium, compared to the daughter element it's becoming, which is lead, all right? So far, this is simple enough that even I can track it. Uranium, radioactive uranium becoming lead over time. You track the half-life, and then you can just kind of do the math and say, this rock is a certain age if you know the decay rate, which is something we know. The problem is, to do this, you need to accept three critical assumptions. That the initial conditions of the rock are known. That the amount of parent-daughter elements hasn't been altered by processes other than radioactive decay. You know, you've got uranium to lead. And the decay rate has been constant since the rock formed. That things are acting right now like they've always acted. The problem is, those assumptions are proving to be wishful thinking. Which is a major problem for scientists who date the Earth at four and a half billion years old. We took lava from Mount St. Helens. We, we took lava. I was there. No. We took lava from Mount St. Helens and we dated it in the same labs that date other igneous rocks, other rocks. Came out to 500,000 to almost three million years old. And we know it's, you know, 20 or 30 years of age when they did this. And it dates at Millions of years age. It's brand new rock. Same with lava flows from the islands in the north part of New Zealand. And the reason when they did this was they found, or, or the reason this is not working is that there was one, there was one, some of these rocks that we know are basically brand new, and they found all kinds of uh, argon, which is a daughter element. It's not the parent element, it's the daughter element, which means that these things aren't as we expect. Our assumptions are wrong. In granite, uranium decays into lead. In granite, as it does, helium is released. For uranium to become lead, I believe, takes about four and a half billion years, so it's one of these things we can kind of trace the half-life. If, if, if granite is four and, a, four and a half billion years old, there shouldn't be any helium in it anymore, because helium releases from rock very quickly. It hasn't. 
So some say the decay rate has changed. The helium diffusion data actually supports a very young planet, according to some scientists. Coal beds, diamonds, a lot of them date thousands of years when you put them under dating. Thousands of years, not millions. They've taken the same rocks, sent them to four of the world's best labs for this. No uniformity of dating. They'll be different by a billion, billion and a half years. Same rocks, four labs. So the dating can be questioned. And then there's bias. Scientists don't begin with in the beginning God. They can't. I understand. I don't blame them. I love scientists. I don't want to think we're in conflict with science. But they have to begin with how could natural processes give us this world over time? There's going to be an alternate explanation. Second, oh, we are in trouble. The record of paleontology works with a global flood story as well. The fossil record is the basis of much of evolutionary theory. Some of the lower sedimentary layers do hold simpler marine organisms. And if you're a, a Christian and you don't believe in macroevolution, we do have to explain that, why the lower sediments have simpler organisms than the upper sediments. That's a legitimate question. We can't ignore that. But that's led to the belief that these organisms developed into basically us. Now, I know some people who I think are very close to simple organisms. I could give names, but I won't. But the fossil record, I believe, is explainable from a flood perspective. So I want to next move into this, and I'm going to try to fly through this. Reasons I believe in flood paleontology. Dating issues, again. So here's a list of this. Dating issues, again. Carbon dating is used to date things that are uh, or were organic. So carbon dating, just, just be aware of this. Carbon dating is what you use in that last sedimentary layers where you got fossils. Radiometric dating, a different set of things is used for actually older rocks or rocks that would appear to be older. So carbon dating is what we use for uh, fossilized items because they had carbon in them, because they were organic. But like rock dating, it measures radioactive decay. Carbon dating is supposed to be good for things that are 60 to 80,000 years old. Here's the problem. If you believe in a Genesis flood, it wasn't that long ago because we've got all of these genealogies. So you can't go to 60 or 80,000 years. Two assumptions are made on carbon dating. The rate of decay hasn't changed, and your starting amount of carbon-14 uh, in a creature when it died should be the same as it would be today. So you have to assume life on the planet is similar to what it was back then. Here's the problem. There's a lot of evidence that says carbon levels have changed in the world pretty radically. Some would say the magnetic field of the Earth continues to weaken, which affects how much carbon comes into the atmosphere. Some would also say the pre-flood biosphere contained massively more carbon in living things than we have today, which is why we have coal beds and oil and gas. The level of organic material was probably a lot greater for the landmass than it is today. If that's the case, there would have been a lot more carbon in things back then. Both point to much younger fossils. In other words, the dating is suspect. And you can find people with the same degrees who believe that as are over here saying billions and billions of years. They've got the same educations. They're just as smart. The necessity of catastrophe. We find few fossils in the ocean. Why do we find few fossils in the ocean? Because you find fossils on land where the ocean dumped sediment. That's where you find fossils. We find marine fossils in Kansas, but not in the ocean as much. Now, you might say it's because it's harder to dig in the ocean because you can't breathe. That is a fair, fair repute. 
But the reality is we find fossils on land because there was this massive amount of sediments that got dumped here through some sort of catastrophe. It's because of a tectonic hydraulic restructure of the planet described in Genesis. Fossils need quick burial and a lack of bacteria and oxygen. It's really hard to get that without catastrophe. The fossil order from simple to complex is explainable. If you go into the lower layers of sedimentary rock and you have simple organisms and then it takes you a few layers up before you get something a little more, uh, you know, a little more complex, the argument is, well, that's the early part of evolution. Well, here's why we believe that is the case. By we, I mean the smart people who I'm reading, who I'm telling you about. When the flood took place, it wasn't rain that caused the problems. It was this subterranean upheaval that God caused that reshaped the planet. If that happened, the first water to come on land would have been the water from the edge of the ocean and all of the marshes where all these small invertebrates live and breed and multiply. That would have been the dominant part of those early sedimentary layers because the fountains of the deep were broken up. It wasn't that rain was pouring on the land. It's that the oceans were coming inland and bringing all of that stuff and those would have been the first sedimentary layers. Then after that, more and more things would have died and been covered. There is an explanation. Mount St. Helens taught us something about this because you can go to, uh, to a geologist and, and they'll show me two different structures uh, or two different elements of rock strata and say, wow, this, this is, uh, these took millions and millions of years to create. You know what Mount St. Helens taught us? When you have um, trees that stood straight up in the water because a root ball was heavier and so the trees stood straight up in the water. It's like, that's interesting because we have found that other places in the world where supposedly you've got rock strata separated by millions and millions of years and we know it can take place in a day because Mount St. Helens taught us this because the flood sediments would have buried a tree upright in a very short period of time, just like Mount St. Helens. But geologists can't explain we've got petrified trees through multiple rock strata that are supposed to be millions, tens of millions of years apart. Because you can do it in a day with the right amount of sediment and the right pressure. Transitional species. And I'm going to close with this before some of you think I'm a transitional species. All right. Thank you for that kind laugh, whoever did that. Here's the problem. Let, let's skip everything I've said. Because this is really a battle between macroevolution and God-creating. At the end of the day, that's where we end up. How did we get life on this planet in its current form? There was a, a science gr a group of um, scientists who went to uh, Chicago. Every good story starts with a group of scientists who went to Chicago. 1980, evolutionists met in Chicago to discuss the relationship between micro and macro evolution. All right, I believe in microevolution. Microevolution basically means if you breed two cats, oh, two cats, why am I even using it? If you breed two dogs, you don't want to breed two cats because that creates more cats. Never breed two cats. There's operations for this. Never breed two cats, all right? And don't let your female cat out in a neighborhood with a male cat. Just don't do it. Just say no. Like Nancy Reagan to drugs, just say no, all right? If you breed two dogs and then you breed their children and their children to each other, we eventually get a good dog with two heads. But nonetheless, 
If you don't get that, what's going to happen? You have genetic inbreeding. They look a certain way. And so what goes on, that's microevolution. You, you have adaptations, you know, moths that, or chameleons that, you know, land on a certain kind of branch that's a certain color, they'll change colors and so on. It's sort of a microevolution as species have within their DNA the ability to adapt in small ways. So the evolutionists said, we're going to get together in Chicago and we're going to discuss how microevolution relates to macroevolution because there's got to be a relationship. Do you know what they said in Science Magazine when that was over? The central question of the Chicago conference was whether, I want to make sure I quoted that correctly, it was the journal Science, yes. The central question of the Chicago conference was whether the mechanisms underlying microevolution can be extrapolated to explain the phenomena of macroevolution. At the risk of doing violence to the positions of some of the people at the meeting, the answer can be given as a clear no. That's an evolutionist convention, concluding, yeah. There's no connection between microevolution and macroevolution. One doesn't really explain the other enough. That's them talking. That's not pastors talking. That's them. Darwin, Charles Darwin, he knows something about evolution, right? Darwin himself said that he would have a problem with transitional species. He assumed that as geology was uh, continually uncovered, that soon there would be all these transitional species discovered. In fact, I think he admitted if they're not, he's in big trouble with his theory. I think he pretty much said that. This is Charles Darwin. The number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on the earth must be truly enormous. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this, perhaps, is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. You know why I like Charles Darwin? I mean, he just wreaked havoc on the Bible, but you know why I like him? He was honest about that. In other words, if you don't get this figured out soon, we don't find these intermediate species, my theory's in big trouble. Well, we haven't found the species, and his theory is alive and well, and if you don't believe it, according to my daughter's professor, get the F out of college. There's a worldview clash in our world. Fossil order. Oh, we already talked about that, I'm sorry. Just want to wrap up real quick. We're going to be five minutes late by the time we're done. It's all my fault. The Genesis flood, believe it or not, apps. First, Christians are not afraid of science. I'm not afraid of science. I believe science will validate what, what we believe. I just believe the Bible is an accurate history book as well. So Christians are not afraid of science, but not all science is verifiable and objective. There are parts of the sciences that make massive assumptions, and the honest scientists in those arenas admit it. You know, during my lifetime, the Big Bang was the big, you know, uh, understanding and, and uh, of course, theory about the origin of the universe. You know, Big Bang's under assault. By who? Not by pastors, by scientists. But every time some new theory comes out, we're like, oh, we got to accommodate it. Let's fit it into our biblical narrative. And then 20 years later, they change their minds. And we're just running and running and running to fit them into our Bibles rather than being a little skeptical and saying, we're not afraid of science. Let's see how this pans out over time. Second, assume you have an accurate record of history in the Bible. I believe the accuracy of the history here is unparalleled. I believe you could correct history texts with the Bible. You have names, dates, people, places, things. It's written as history in its narrative portions. Not all of it's meant to be history, but where it's history, it's history. Don't quickly dismiss it. Don't quickly dismiss it. And third, 
You can't separate the teaching of history from the teaching of ethics and salvation. When you quickly throw away Genesis 1 through 11 and say, it just can't be because my science teacher doesn't agree, there's a problem there, and I want to tell you why. Because if I can't trust it there, where can I trust it? Where do I start believing it? That's a problem. It's interesting, speaking of atheists and evolutionists, speaking to the Times, Richard Dawkins, who wrote, what, The God Delusion, right? All right, The God Delusion, said he fears the removal of religion. I love that. He doesn't want religion removed. He said he fears it would be a bad idea for society because it would give people license to do really bad things. No, he wants religion's ethics. He just doesn't want God. He likened the importance of a higher power informing our morality to the presence of surveillance cameras to prevent shoplifting, warning people would feel free to commit crimes if the need to obey the divine spy camera in the sky, reading their every thought, was removed. He said people may feel free to do bad things because they feel God is no longer watching them. And they've done experiments like that. There's one listed here where there's an honesty box where you get coffee and you're supposed to put money in there and how much money people give when they're under camera versus not under camera, et cetera, et cetera. Guess what? When nobody's looking, we cheat the coffee system. Dawkins says whether irrational or not, it does unfortunately seem plausible that if somebody sincerely believes God is watching his every move, he might be more likely to be good. I must say I hate that idea. I want to believe that humans are better than that. I'd like to believe I'm honest whether anyone is watching or not. But what he's saying is, and this is an atheist saying, we need religion to keep people honest. I want nothing to do with that kind of religion. If this isn't true, I'm sure sorry that I'm here wasting your time. If Jesus of Nazareth isn't the Son of God, I want nothing to do with this book of lies. I do not want a religion based on a mythological figure thinking he's God. In order to have the power of the Spirit of God and the Son of God and the Father behind this book's ethics and morals and path to salvation, it's got to be true. It's got to be completely true. The history and the ethics. I don't think you can separate them. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll sing our final song. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. And I'm sure that everyone here knows I'm, I'm not an expert in these areas, but I am quoting experts. And there probably aren't a lot of experts in these areas even among us, but, we, but many are trained in these areas. And none of us were there. So we're choosing to trust your word. We're trying to figure out how we can believe what we hear in the world around us and how we can believe your word. And this is a struggle and we don't all agree. But I pray that you would help us to be open to all views and to help us to have a bias that your word is truth. Your word is truth. And to not easily dismiss it just because there's a, another theory, another view that comes from a perspective that there must not be a God often. We do not have to accommodate that. But we aren't afraid of real science, provable science either. Help us to be wise with all of these issues and to be loving with each other where we disagree. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect, or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.